Pastor Greg kind of stole my thunder there. I don't have nothing else to say. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 1 again. John chapter 1. I don't have my lovely assistant here, so I'm going to mess with this. John chapter 1. Last week we went through verses 1 through 5. Tonight we're going to go verses 6 through 18, so we're going to end the prologue. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, and the verses will be behind me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may you open the eyes of our hearts tonight as we go through this passage. Another one that's been very, has been a large impact on my life. The Word made flesh, your Son, Jesus, coming into our mess to redeem us. It's all grace. It's amazing grace. Just fill us with your spirit tonight. Maybe glorify you tonight in all that we say and what we do when we leave. In your precious name, amen. For the longest time, I heard through the guidebooks that St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was amazing. I heard for the longest time that it's magnificent. It's huge. So I trusted in the promises of those guidebooks. I trusted that it was magnificent, though I never saw it with my own eyes. Sure, I heard that from the floor to the top of the dome, it was 450 feet high. Sure, I heard the dome itself was 138 feet in diameter, but I never fully realized the beauty of it. Then I stepped foot in a St. Peter's Basilica. I was breathless. It was magnificent. The promises that the guidebooks told me that I would be breathless came to fulfillment. It was true. It was amazing. People just dwarfed in size compared to St. Peter's. It was massive. See, in Europe, they build the cathedrals. They built them large to try to magnify the glory of God, to try to make you feel like you're in the presence of God, to feel the weightiness of being in the presence of God. Michelangelo, who's one of the architects of St. Peter's, 
he had this quote to say about trying to build things to glorify God. He said, the mind, the soul, becomes ennobled by the endeavor to create something perfect. For God is perfection, and whoever strives after perfection is striving for something divine. No artwork, no building, even St. Peter's, will fully show the glory of God. But the glory of God did show itself in the person of Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God. And the word became flesh. These verses we read tonight, they're about a promise fulfilled, glory revealed, and one greater than Moses emerges. You see, the Bible tells us an ultimate story. It tells us an ultimate story of reality. It's a grand narrative of our lives, of the world. It's, there's many stories that fall within this grand story, but it's an ultimate story. The problem with some children's books, you'll read something like the story of David and Goliath. And you get this idea that it's just this disconnected story from a bigger story. That it's maybe a story just about overcoming some of our struggles or maybe fighting the fears in our life. But it's a smaller story from a major story. That there is somebody who comes, who fights the giant of death, sin and death, and that's Jesus. It's pointing to something bigger. It's not a disconnected story. It's connected to a larger one. If you don't see the connections from Genesis all the way, all the way through Revelation, in fact, then it's hard. You won't see the connections. It's all one string. It's a story. When you read the entire Bible as a story, you can break it into acts, like a play. Act one, you have creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, redemption. And act four, restoration. In act one, you have creation. In every good story, you have a protagonist, a lead character. It's God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God spoke. And as we learned last week, through his word, Logos, Jesus, all things were created through him. So we have a protagonist. The earth is beautiful. God creates it. And then he creates mankind, Adam and Eve. And it was perfect. It was beautiful. But then we get to act two, which is the fall. And in every good story, you have an antagonist. You have Satan, who comes in the serpent. And he deceives Adam and Eve. He makes them question the authority of God. He makes them question the goodness of God. They give in to the temptation. Sin and death enter into the story. And from that point on, we know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And that's when we get to Act 3, redemption. Act 3 starts all the way back in Genesis 3.15, when God makes a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the snake's head. It's the start of this whole line of redemption that God makes a promise all the way back in Genesis. And right now we're in Act 3, redemption. Every movie you see cries for a story to be made right. There's a cry for some kind of redemption. One of the best examples I can think of is Les Miserables. If you've never seen the movie or watched the play, it's a story of Jean Valjean. It's just after the French Revolution time. And Jean Valjean just stole a loaf of bread, and he was in prison for 19 years. He gets out of prison, and he has to carry around the slip of paper that says he's a thief 
At that time, that's his identity. And he goes around and he tries to find a place to sleep, tries to find food, but people just turn him away because he has this slip of paper. Then he runs into Bishop Muriel, and Bishop Muriel shows him grace. He takes him in, he feeds him. That evening, while they're sleeping, Jean Valjean goes into the cabinets and he pulls silverware out, he takes him and he runs out in the night. The French police capture him, take him back to Bishop Muriel, and in the best act of grace, perfect example of grace, he says, wait a minute, I gave you those but I forgot to give you the two silver candlesticks. And he hands Jean Valjean the two candlesticks. He redeemed Jean Valjean from going back to prison. He gave him grace. Now listen, Jean Valjean was blown away. Listen to what he says. If you've ever seen the play, I'm not going to sing to you, so don't worry about that. I don't have a nice voice like Hal. <laughs> what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night? Become a dog on the run? And have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late, that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? The cries in the dark that nobody hears? Hear where I stand in the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean. When they chained me and left me for dead, just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I have come to hate this world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit came to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Another story must begin. There's a new identity. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. He showed me I have a soul. He touched my soul and he showed me love. A man bitter and angry, shown love, shown grace. It's redemption. All of the stories, even Hollywood, cries for the story to be made right. Just the other night, Amanda and I were watching The Two Towers, the second in the series of Lord of the Rings. And we got to the end of the two towers, and Frodo and Sam were having this conversation back and forth, and my ears perked up, because it's exactly the same thing. This is what Sam says. I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you're too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? 
that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. These stories cry for redemption. We see them all through these stories. But there's a bigger story. It's God's story, and we're all a part of the story. God makes a promise all the way back in Genesis 3. He says that he put enmity between the woman and the snake. It's the redemption. At the point of the story, we're looking for redemption because we know the story's not right. The story's not the way it's supposed to be. The entire plot line story through the Bible is redemption. You see it all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to Revelation. You see the pages are saturated with the sweet drops of redemption. Every nook and cranny you see redemption. God is promising redemption to his people Israel, but not only to Israel, eventually it's to everyone. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and he says, Abraham, go out from your country and your kindred. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. All families of the world will be blessed through you. The term for families, it can mean tribe, and it can mean race. The word became flesh. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What John is saying here is it's a fulfillment of what goes back all the way to Genesis 12. That it's not just the fact that you're born a Jew. It's not the fact that you're born in the lineage of the Jewish race. It's not the fact that you're born in North Santa Maria. It's not the fact that you're born down in South Santa Maria or Orchid or Santa Barbara. We all come to the cross in the need of grace. We can't save ourselves. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. Justification by faith. He's not saying, John's not saying that we ignore ethnic differences. In fact, we like ethnic differences. If the world was full of short, white, bald dudes that preached on Sunday evening, the world would be a boring place. I like Mexican food. I like Indian food. I like Greek food. And I even like Wendy's. We celebrate these ethnic differences, but what they're saying is our standing before God is all through Christ. There's nothing we do. The Jews used to think because we were born Jew, that makes us all right. And John's talking against that. Paul then takes, later on through the story, Paul takes the offspring promised to Abraham and he applies it to Christ. He says the promise was made to your offspring, not offsprings, your offspring who is Jesus. Jesus is the seed God promised to Abraham. See, Abraham didn't fully realize the promise. He didn't, he's not standing on this side of redemption like we are. But Jesus says in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he did. Abraham trusted in God's promise back in Genesis 12. He trusted in a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. I trust in those guidebooks at St. Peter's would be amazing, and it was. The story in the Old Testament, it, send, it points us forward to the ultimate story. That's God's plan of redemption. Something about the Old Testament as well, that people are saved the same way in the Old Testament as they are in the New. You look at Paul in Romans 4. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now these blessings, was it before or after he'd been circumcised? 
it was before, so that he would be the father of both the Jew and the Gentile. But then Paul goes on. He doesn't take just a specific promised land. He expands it. He says the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world. So the promises that go all the way through the Old Testament, we trace redemption through the entire Old Testament. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. God asks for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, so he takes him up on the mountain. But God provides a ram. Abraham calls that Jehovah-Jireh. God provides. It's pointing forward to something bigger, a bigger part of the story, that Jesus would be the ultimate lamb, the lamb of God. God rescues Israel from Egypt. He delivers them out of Egypt, which points to a greater deliverance. The prophets prophesy about the Redeemer that will bring deliverance. Isaiah 7, that the virgin will give birth, conceive, give birth to Emmanuel. God is with us. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and God laid the iniquity of us all on him. It's a suffering servant. It's the, the promise of redemption. The psalmist is always talking about the God of their salvation. Salvation belongs to God. The word for salvation in the Old Testament, it's used over 195 times. The pages are saturated with this idea of redemption, of the story being made right. Many of you know Jeremiah 31. Then comes the promise of the new covenant. See, you guys screwed up back in Exodus after I delivered you from Egypt. You screwed up big time like we screw up now. So I'm going to write my law within your hearts. You will be my people. I will be your God. We have the promise of the new covenant. And then some of the final words from God in the Old Testament in Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So all through the Old Testament, we get the shadows, we get the glimpses of God working out through the story of redemption. And then there's 400 years of silence from God. But then there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. After 400 years of silence, the spiritual Elijah has come. Jesus says in Matthew 11, for all the prophets in the, law, in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. The promise has been fulfilled, and John the Baptist paves the way for the fulfillment of God's promises. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So all through the Old Testament, we see God's story. They're, in the Old Testament, they're hearing about, they're getting glimpses of, they're trusting in the promises of God. The main promise is redemption. But they never get to realize the fulfillment of the promise, which is Jesus. All those times I heard and read about St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, I never really grasped how magnificent that building was. We as believers are on this right side of redemption. We're on this side of redemption. It has been fulfilled in Christ, and we are all a part of God's story. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, Christianity is community in Christ, and through Christ, we belong to one another. We're all in this story together. No matter where you work, you work for the glory of God. We're all involved in this story. But then God's glory is revealed. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
Jesus became flesh, the incarnation, fully God, fully man. When Jesus became flesh, he didn't lose his divinity. He now has two natures. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. When you look through the history of the church, all the heresies revolve around downplaying one side of, God's na- of Jesus' nature. For instance, there's a heresy called Apollinarism. It's a tough word there. Also called empty shell Christology. In this teaching, God was just simply in Jesus or taking residence in Jesus. So this teaches that Jesus had no human mind or human will. It was just divine. So it's downplaying the human nature of Jesus. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he argued against this heresy. And his Summa Theologica, which is a classic in philosophy, very influential in the Western world. Aquinas is not impressed. Then there was Nestorianism, which taught that under Jesus there was two distinct persons, two different people under one skin. Think of theater, the pantomime horse. You have two people under one skin. That's the heresy of Nestorianism. One's, they're downplaying one of those natures of who Christ is. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, the Incarnation is another foundational doctrine of the church. It's a closed-hand issue. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. Now, when John says the word became flesh, it literally means he became fleshy, fleshy, vulnerable. He sees, we read last week, Jesus was face-to-face with God the Father. He shared the glory of God the Father. But he came down in the incarnation. He got into our mess, and he became vulnerable, fleshy. This means God is not some distant, impersonal God, but he is a personal God who got into our mess and to redeem us. The author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but he was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. He got into our mess. He became vulnerable to rescue us. Now, if you're familiar with John's writings, the reason why I'm building out this promise fulfilled, this whole idea of the Bible being a story, is that he's connecting these dots. Especially John's writings, if you read Revelation, he keeps making allusions back into the Old Testament. You have to see it, how it's all connected. And if you read this, if you read this passage, you'll, you'll, and you understand the Old Testament very well, you'll see a lot of things he's alluding back to. And his listeners would have known it right away. For example, if I ask you, what does John 3.16 say? Most of you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and you guys could finish that off. You're very familiar with that passage. Well, the Jews would have known what John's talking about. For instance, in the Old Testament, glory meant something that was heavy or had weightiness to it. When I saw Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's, it had a weightiness to it. It was heavy. All other thoughts just kind of dispelled. My mind was focused on the beauty of these buildings. When John speaks of Jesus dwelling among us, beholding his glory, grace and truth, most Jews would have recalled back to the events in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Moses went up on the mountain. He's having the two tablets. God's making the two tablets. And the Israel's complaining. They're whining. Where's Moses at? Where's Moses at? Aaron, help us. So Aaron has them gather all their gold together, and they build this golden calf. 
And they start worshiping this golden calf and saying, he's the one, the golden calf's the one who delivered us from Egypt. God's angry, rightfully so, and he's going to wipe all of Israel out. And Moses begs and begs, and God relents from destroying them. Moses goes down the mountain, and he sees his people worshiping the golden calf. And he's angry, and he breaks the tablets. It's a bloody story. 3,000 men were killed. The Levites with their swords go by, and they kill 3,000 people. It was just an ugly story. Well, so, God doesn't, so that God doesn't wipe them out, they set up a, uh, Moses sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp to tabernacle. Tabernacle. God descends on a cloud, in a cloud. So when God says the word dwelt among us, when John says the word dwelt among us, that word for dwelt is tabernacle. He's the only New Testament author that uses that Greek word. He's referring back to Exodus. God was not willing to initially to tabernacle them because they were a stiff-necked people. But Jesus, God in the flesh, tabernacled with us. John's pointing back to Exodus. In Exodus 33, he sets up the tent of meeting. And then he's having this conversation with God in this tent of meeting. He's, he's pleading with God to go with him because God's saying, I'll send somebody with you, but I'm not going to go with you. And there's about four or five times that Moses asks for his favor, grace. And he's having this conversation. I don't know exactly what he's saying. It doesn't say, but he's probably, probably worried because here they are. They're trusting in Aaron. Aaron screws up. God's upset. God's not willing to go with him initially. And he says, I don't care about the promised land. I don't care about the land flowing with milk and honey. I want you in our presence. I want you to be with us. It doesn't matter if we make it to the promised land. If you're not with us, and God says, I give you my favor, my grace. And then Moses says, show me your glory. Show me the weightiness of your presence. That's where glory comes from. And we, and we say, John says, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only son. Moses says, show me your glory. And God knows, he gives him grace, because he knows that's what Moses wanted the most, was God's presence. John is referring back to the Exodus account, and everybody there would have known. The gospel has a weightiness that weighs down. We should pray that it weighs down our very souls constantly. You hear it, you hear the term to preach the gospel to yourself, the phrase, preach your gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. It has a weightiness. We have to remind ourselves what the gospel is. That's what Moses wanted. He wanted the weightiness of the presence of God to be his top desire. But then the story of Exodus continues on. God then gave directions to Moses. He would stand on a ledge of a rock, and God would pass by him. But God would shield him, because you can't see God face to face and live. So he gives him these directions. And so Moses, he goes ahead and he cuts out the stone tablets again. He goes up on Mount Sinai, like God instructed him to. And God descended in a cloud, and the Lord passed by Moses, declaring his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. Grace and truth. It's all through the Old Testament. John's pointing back to the God who's the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He's a God of grace and truth. Then Moses asked for grace again. He said, if now I have favor, found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. 
When Jesus talks, says that G, when God, John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, he's pointing back to God in the Old Testament. God's glory has been revealed in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, who is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's full of grace and truth. Not only is he full of grace and truth, but he's greater than Moses. And one greater than Moses emerges out of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Towards the end of the prologue, we now see a contrast that John makes. It is a contrast between law and grace. Through Moses, the law was given, but through Jesus Christ, grace and truth came. John's not saying that we completely throw away Moses and the law as if they're bad in themselves. He's not saying we forget about the law. What he's saying is that it's incomplete. It's pointing forward to something greater. The law is a shadow. Jesus is the substance. The law just points us to a schoolmaster. Jesus is the ultimate master. Paul tells us the law was a guardian, our guardian until Christ came. But Christ has come. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope. The author of Hebrews is saying that the builder is superior to the house. But to say that the builder is superior to the house does not say that the house is bad. In fact, if you say the house itself is bad, it's reflecting on the character of the builder himself. The builder is Jesus. The house is Moses. We don't just throw the law out. He's making a contrast, though. The law was not complete. Jesus completes it. He's the fulfillment. The law had its purpose. It pointed everybody to the need of a savior. The law can't save us. Only God through, can through Jesus. The law points towards the truth but it's not the truth. The law points toward the need for grace, but it's not grace. Jesus is grace and truth, and his grace overflows. God has always shown grace and truth all the way from the first act, all the way through. God has always shown grace. When John says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, it literally means grace in place of grace. Grace instead of grace. Because in the Old Testament, God showed grace as well. For instance, God didn't wipe Adam and Eve out. They didn't die right away. That's grace. God rescued Israel from Egypt. That's grace. God didn't wipe them out when they said, this golden calf rescued us from Egypt. Not God, not the Lord, but this golden calf, he didn't wipe them out. That's grace. God didn't wipe Israel out all through the Old Testament when they committed spiritual adultery to God. That's grace. 
In Hosea, we see how Israel acts like a spiritual whore and commits adultery in God. God doesn't wipe them out. That's grace. It's all through the Old Testament. Grace permeates the entire story. But through Jesus Christ, the cup of grace is overflowing. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy. No one has ever seen God, but now Jesus has made him known. Now we know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. One greater than Moses has come. When I finally stepped foot into St. Peter's, the promise of amazement that the guidebooks promised, that I trusted in, were realized. Standing in such a, such a beautiful building, it brought a heaviness to me. It brought a weightiness to me. I was stuck in the moment, weighed down by it. But there's something much, much more glorious than St. Peter's Church, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Word who became flesh. He became vulnerable for us even when we were enemies of Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. He's not just a prophet among prophets. As the author of Hebrews says, he is the prophet. He's not just speaking the truth. He is the truth. Jesus, who is greater than Moses, stepped out of the shadows and the types of the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's God's glory being revealed. And one greater than Moses emerges. Through the gospel, we've been given the right to become children of God, not just because we were born in a nice location, not just because we were born in Santa Maria, Santa Barbara. It's the gospel. We all come to the cross in the need of a Savior, and that's Jesus. The gospel should pierce every facet of our lives, for our top desire should be for the glory of God. It should weigh heavy on us. And we should be able to rejoice when we preach this gospel to ourselves. We should be able to rejoice like John later does in 1 John. When he sees, see what, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And we are. The prologue to the Gospel of John is about the authority of Jesus, the word, logos. But it's also about the glory of God. And it's about promises being fulfilled all the way back from Genesis 3 onward because we're all a part of this story, this grand story, God's story of redemption. Because the world is, it's obvious that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we cry for redemption. We see these Syrian refugees drowning, thousands of them, and we cry for redemption. You see the young boy head first in the water from drowning, and we cry for redemption. But our hope is that God will make things right that the earth is groaning, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, that there will be an ultimate redemption, and we get to act for, which is what we put our hope in, the restoration of all things. Let us learn to love the deep truths that John gives us in his gospel, and let it weigh heavy on us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these words, your son Jesus, just, is just, just help it to, to weigh down on us, this, the gospel, to preach it to ourselves all the time. We get so wrapped up in our daily lives, we get so wrapped in our, up in our busy lives that we forget to be grateful for what you've done for us. We were enemies, but you showed our lo your love for us 
that while we were enemies, that Christ died for us. Emmanuel, God is with us. The suffering servant who bore our sins on his body, on the cross. We thank you for your amazing grace. Let us approach your throne of grace in the time of need to receive your mercy. And let us pray that all the time that we may see your glory. We can glorify you daily in this story. It doesn't matter. We don't have to be paid ministers. We don't have to be people working certain jobs. All of our jobs are for the glory of you, Lord. You've put us in places in this story for a reason. Let us glorify you no matter what kind of job we have. Let us speak the gospel from our lips. And thank you for your blessings. In your precious name, amen.